Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Al Tepper, who was formerly the Barry White of Publishing and now the founder of Tep Food. Barry, could you give a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to get to this point? Yes, absolutely. Well, I was uh, involved in publishing for a long time, and as a portly fellow, I shall call myself, which I like, I like the word portly, I was often the most positive chap in town, so I really brought the love. So that moniker, self-titled though it may have been, uh, was, a great, was a great definer of me. So thank you for the introduction and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. A little so bit tell about, us about your journey. Yeah. I've been in marketing all my life. I started out in publishing, in marketing within publishing in 1998, having left the University of Stirling having done a master's degree in publishing. So I was set for a life of publishing and marketing. And my first job was at the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, which I cruelly, if I'm honest, if anyone from the CBI is listening to this, they may take issue with this. But there were a lot of people there. They were very cool people. They were very smart people. But there were a lot of people there who were, I always felt, not particularly ambitious. I felt like they were serving time to uh, see out the end of they're illustrious careers. I always describe that as died at 30, buried at 70. Well, I described it as staring down the barrel of a pension. <laughs> that's what it felt like. But there were some amazing people there. It was a great introduction. I had a fantastic managing editor who you know, taught me a lot. I mean, it was my first job, so I learned an awful lot. Worked with some incredible people that are very memorable. Kate Barker was the chief economist at the time, who then went on to the Monetary Policy Committee for the Bank of England. So really smart, some really super smart policy people and me, obviously, completely out of place. <laughs> and we were then, incredibly, the publication was called CBI News. And we were then outsourced to Caspian Publishing, who produced the incredible Real Business magazine, which they launched in 97. And they produced the Real Stable, Real Business, Real Deals, which was venture capital, private equity, Okay. finance and rose up the ranks over six years from publishing minion to and marketing minion to effectively take over the web operation as it was then called now we'd call it digital because i saw the opportunity in a business where nobody really understood the web i saw the opportunity to move publishing digitally from a cost center to a revenue generator and worked with the commercial teams to deliver their visions and help them monetize the web in the early noughties. And then spent three years in luxury retail, a slight diversion. I went to work for a luxury retailer who wanted to become a publisher. They recognized in 2006 the value of content, rightly so, and spent three years with them, helping them on their mission. That then was exited up to Sunderland, and uh, I'm a Southern lad. So I wasn't going to be going to Sunderland. And I don't, I don't know whether I would have even had a role, but it wasn't an option for me. So then went into consulting, back into publishing. And that's actually the most interesting bit, I think, for me of my career. I went to work for a relatively small family publishing business and focused on one publication they had that was called Outsource. And it was a title serving the outsourcing and shared services space. As a result, that publication was very run down at the time. And I took it over, reinvigorated it massively, brought on, on board a, a full-time editor who I worked very closely with over five years. We got an ABC audit, took it digital, did everything you should do. 
turn that publication into something really fantastic, created an events arm, was serving the likes of KPMG, Accenture, IBM, Capgem, Wipro, a lot of the large TCS, you know, a lot of large outsourcing and IT guys and girls. Then that was exited. So I exited that, then went out on my own and vowed never to work for anyone again until I realized, of course, I work for my wife effectively because I work <laughs> for my family. My family is now my boss. But that's, a much, that's the best boss I've ever had, of course. So then I launched Tepfu, and Tepfu is all about the art of disruptive marketing and now particularly focused on marketing leadership coaching. Okay, so let's talk about disruption because that's a, an area that's very close to my heart. My entire focus going forward in terms of my content, my marketing is focusing on the 10 to 50 million pound disruptive tech scale-up that's looking to grow, hyper-growth, 200% year-on-year growth and take them from that size to a billion over the next eight years. And I'm really interested in your thinking around what is disruption in marketing? Well, it's a great question. I think if you ask 50 marketing people what disruption is, you'll probably get 55 answers. It actually isn't that complicated. I think it does mean one thing. And disruption to me is it's aligned to innovation, but it's not the same thing. So I would argue that Uber is innovative, not disruptive. And I think a lot of people would agree, people who understand the difference. So the difference between innovation and disruption is innovation is taking something that exists and innovating it to be better faster, quicker, cheaper, across platform, whatever. Disrupting is really about taking an entirely new way of doing something. So, for example, I wouldn't even argue that Netflix was disruptive because all it did was leverage technology. It was innovative. There's a big difference. I would argue uh, Airbnb was disruptive because no one was doing really what Airbnb does prior to Airbnb. Netflix Before Netflix and Amazon Prime, there was Love Film, there was DVDs on tap. It was just the technology that changed, really. You could get DVDs through the post. So all that really changed was the delivery, right? So disruption in marketing, for me, you know, I often tell this story that, Marcus, do you know how to outrun a lion? Yeah, find someone slower than you. Absolutely. You run faster than any one of your mates. It's the easiest There's no chance for either of us. There's the rub. So when life has blessed you with the portly, uh, statuesque, Rubenesque figures that we have and bear, you're not going to outrun it. I'm not going to outrun anyone. Well, I'd be surprised if I outran anyone. So I'd have to be more clever than that. So in disruptive context, I'd have to come up with a better way of changing the game. And as lots of wiser people than me have said, you don't win battles by fighting them on the ground defined by another. You win battles by not even fighting the battle. You win battles by not fighting them on the ground that others have defined, but by redefining where you fight the battle. Sun Tzu was the first time I read that in The Art of War. Whoever defines where the battle is fought wins. And so outrunning my mates ceases to be the objective. All I need to do is A, distract the lion and make one of my mates more attractive to the lion. So I'm going to carry a pot of gravy and I'm going to throw it over someone and that I don't need to outrun anyone now. In fact, I don't even need to move. In fact, it's probably better if I don't move. I'm just going to stand there, squirt the gravy over the bloke next to me and watch the lion go to town. And whilst the lion's eating them and, and is distracted and happy, then I'm saving manager and I'm buggering them. So disruption well, is, is that really, I think, in business. Okay. The line. So again, 
one of my heroes for business is Napoleon. I always think of the Battle of Austerlitz being won years before through the planning. And I think there isn't enough intellect that's brought to bear in business. I think what people tend to do is react. They don't choose the landscape. They don't choose the terrain. They don't choose the time. And as a result of that, they tend to follow. I've got a little poster on my wall from my third favorite website, despair.com, which is given the opportunity for everyone to choose they basically become the same. It's a herd of zebra, the image. And I think people, are they lack imagination and they look for what's safe, what feels familiar. So I'm really interested in terms of the thinking process that you take your clients through to be disruptive. It's really interesting that you said that because I often talk about being disruptive. The need to be disruptive is in business, you have a choice. You either outspend or you outposition your competition. That's your only choice. You're either going to outgun them with money and everything else you're going to spend money on, or you're going to be innovative and disruptive enough so that the lion, you're not going to need to outrun the lion. You're just going to be not, the lion's not even going to notice you. And so the process I take people through, I have a system called conversation mastery. And it's something I've built over 20 years. It's extremely portable and repeatable. And it's something I teach uh, as a marketing leadership coach. I teach my conversation mastery system to them. And, and I also deploy it as, you know, as a bespoke consultant for corporations that A, can afford my day rate and B, don't want to learn it, don't need to learn it, don't want, just want a done-for-you service. And conversation mastery falls into three uh, segments. The first segment is in brand mastery. So you have to have the best story in town no question. And the innovation and disruption comes in at the story stage. And the story comes from the deepest place possible. Marketing isn't about force, it's about feeling. In a world where people buy from people, the way we present ourselves, in tech, we often refer to winning the last mile. But for me, it's about winning the first mile. It's not even about that first impression. It's about pre-impression. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in Blink talked about micro-expressions and micro perceptions and instant perceptions, you know, almost, almost intuitive perceptions that we're not even consciously ever aware of that we're drawing and making. And the same thing happens in business. By the time someone is consciously considering your brand, they've probably already framed your brand. They've probably already packaged it, decided where it goes. So you've got to make that story utterly amazing. And the first, the first time I ever heard this described was Seth Godin's Purple Cow. You're driving along, brown cow, brown cow, brown cow, no one cares. Purple cow, Instagram, everyone around the world knows it in 10 minutes. So your brand in its DNA, as Seth would say, you have to have absolute awesomeness built in to the story, to the product, to the service, to the offering, everything. It has to be notable. It has to be remarkable. The brand mastery phase of the conversation mastery system is about the process we use to help people get to that incredible story. And then the second phase is content mastery, because from amazing story comes your content strategy, comes what you're going to talk about. And I'm really, really pleased of the system I've developed there, because again, after 20 years, frankly, I practice lazy marketing. That doesn't mean I don't want to do anything, but I want my clients coming to me. I don't want to be out there hunting on the Serengeti every day. What an absolute energy drain that is. I I want to set a trap that's interesting. 
and I want my customers to come towards me. Now, nowadays, we've got very clever words for that, like funnel <laughs> and mm-hmm. tripwire but, and, but, and magnet. But in old marketing money, we'd call it a USP or an offer. Nothing's really changed. And the reason people have got less imaginative is because we go back to what I was saying about the algorithm. The algorithm has taken over for the last two decades. What that means is people have become dependent on the algorithm. So the way to win nowadays is just to show up and try a little bit harder because the average person in marketing, I find, isn't that imaginative. But most marketing is bland and it's tiresome. And in tech, it's atrocious. That's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. In tech, how many brands do you know in tech that are blue or gray? Uh, Well, I know one blue one. Well, most in my experience, so many brands vote for the conservative look and feel. The only one that springs to mind is IBM because they've got that dominant position. Well, that's Uh, why they were called Big Blue. I suppose there's SAP and HP as well, but they're very much afterthoughts. And and what colours Capgemini? And and what colours TCS, Tata Consulting? Now, Wipro was different because Wipro was this beautifully multicoloured seed, oil seed. I think Cognizant was blue. I think Blue Prism obviously was blue because that's I mean, so, you know, when I think about it, when you start actually working it through, actually, people are still very conservative. It's blue and gray. Not very, you know. One of the basic rules of being a human being is people look for what feels familiar. Absolutely. By nature, we're conservative. We loathe change. I've said it on many of my podcasts, but Woodrow Wilson got this bang to rights. If you want to make enemies, recommend change. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. There's the third part. The first part is, is brand mastery. The second part is content mastery. And the third part is campaign mastery because it's all very well having a great brand story and it's all very well having you know a fantastic content strategy, but you need to weaponize that. And, and I hate using that word, but I also love using that word because it's such a cheesy marketing word, weaponize. But that's what I mean. You have to weaponize the brand and the content strategies into effective campaigns that are going to attract people towards you. And not just people, your tribe in marketing speak, your people, the people you want to come towards you. And if you do that, they will come towards you. It's an inevitability. As sure as the bee goes to the flower. I mean, this is not something new that I have created out of thin air. All I'm mimicking is nature, really, because all the bee does is go towards the beautiful flower because it knows there will be nectar in there. And whilst it's having the nectar, the flower slaps some pollen on its back. The bee buggers off, pollinates the plant. Yeah, I mean, it's the oldest story ever written. So all content mastery does is accept what, as fact, there's a fantastic book, I don't know if you heard of it, called The Clue Train Manifesto, written in 1999 by three luminaries of the internet. And it was a, a collection of 95 theses of how the internet was going to change commerce and business. And the first thesis is markets are conversations. Yeah. So if markets are conversations, business leaders need to be conversation masters. Okay. So that then brings me to the next question, which is, I saw a post by Stephen Fry talking about how CEOs generally add very little value. And in fact, the more they earn, the worse or more negative the impact. I see the CEO as the totem it's their job to be the company storyteller. And yeah. very often, they're not. They seem to be accountants who are very good at yep. writing spreadsheets. I think the most innovative CEOs are great storytellers, and they're a great front for the business. 
But one thing that really fascinates me is how do people put this story together? You know, you're talking about getting your story from the deepest place and telling it with feeling, not force. How do you advise people to go about identifying what their story is and creating it? Well, the easiest way is to book time with me, obviously. obviously um, but, but Naturally. That's, we're, we're not plugging on this. No, no. It would, be, it, would be, it would be remiss of me not to say that. <laughs> but I, I think the key thing is, I mean, I've certainly got a process. And if I wasn't able to show someone the process, the advice I would give, I was saying this to uh, someone I was speaking to today, you've got to go to the place where your objectives meet their objectives. And I don't mean superficially. I mean as deep as possible. So your objectives overall in life. So for example, I often talk about why people start businesses because your marketing should come from why. Obviously, Simon Sinek nailed it, but we've been talking about it for longer than Simon had nailed it for. We just didn't have it so eloquently put. But people buy why you do stuff, not what you do and how you do it. So you have to know why you do stuff and you have to create a Venn diagram with one circle that says why you do stuff or why you've launched that business. And you have to create a Venn diagram. The other circle of the Venn diagram is why customers care about that. Who cares and so what, right? So in the middle of that, then you will find the elements of your story that create ultimate power because they speak to your truth of to what, as to why you do what you do and that corresponds with what your market will care about ultimately. And the process to get there, you know, I often generally make business leaders, CEOs, MDs cry because it should be powerful. If it can't move them, who the hell is it going to move? If they're not motivated by it, if they're not enthused and excited, like giggling children again, when they realize all of these things, if they can't feel energy about their brand, why the hell would a customer? And you can talk about the most boring brands in the world. I don't care. Dentistry, funeral directing, technology, it really doesn't matter. People buy from people, and we're all on a mission to achieve stuff in our existence. So if you can tap into what I want to get to, and if you can show me you're going to take me there, I'm in. Whether you're in whatever business you're in, you're in the business of selling change. And what people are looking for is transformation and outcomes and they're looking for a more positive future they're looking for a more positive outcome yeah. uh, from where they are and i think people forget that because they fall in love with the ugly baby the product they insist on spending time talking about the product let me be absolutely clear for any of you who are listening no one in the history of humanity has woken up and say you know bugger me what i really want is a crm what i want is a drill It just doesn't happen. There's a reason behind it. And Al's point about getting to understand their why is really important. It's very important that you understand what your purpose is because people with a purpose will outperform people without one. Correct. But recognize that people buy for their reasons, not yours. And if you cannot find that alignment in your sales and your marketing, then you are going to find yourself working awfully hard. And I'm with Al as well. I brand myself frequently as the laziest salesperson you will ever meet (laughs) for the simple reason that the prospect should do all the work. They should handle their own objections. They should do the presentation. They should close themselves. You should be doing very little of this. And if you don't align your sales and marketing 
and they are not unified and cohesive, then you are creating a problem for yourself and you're confusing your customer. For any of you who are under the illusion that somehow sales and marketing are separate entities, understand this. Sales is a subset of marketing. Marketing is anything that touches the customer. It's any form of packaging, any form of messaging, your building, the state of your office, your clothing, anything that touches the customer in any way, shape, or form is marketing. And sales is where rubber hits the road. It's where you actually eyeball to eyeball and you take money from the prospect and you go to the bank and you cash it. Al, let's just move into this discussion around the disconnect and the ludicrous conflict between sales and marketing. First of all, why do you think it happens? Uh, Ego. Good. Agreed. Okay, that's sweet and short. So why does it persist? It persists because leadership is very good at siloing right roles and responsibilities and they're very good at creating hierarchy that's often non-meritocratic and often ego influenced and they're very good leadership are generally very good in my experience at not creating a unified mission and vision and when you mix all of those things together you get a collection of individuals competing to move in the same direction which frankly is insanity really if you think about it it's like getting eight people in a rowing boat and not incentivizing the right behaviors. So if you took an example of a rowing boat, at the moment in a normal eight-man rowing boat, you're incentivizing all eight people to row for a singular team goal. Most corporates and most businesses that I see run on the basis of there is no team goal, there are only individual goals, and if you don't row harder than everybody else, you're going to lose your job. Well, what happens is you're not operating as a team. You're creating individual missions, individual behaviors, and so that's what you get, individual behaviors, individual missions. There really is very few examples of genuine team behavior, and that's because people in a non-meritocratic environment, you know, we're all human. We all, everyone fears for their job. You know, no one wants to be unemployed. You know, you've got rent to pay, there's responsibilities. So people tend towards the middle, they tend towards safe. I saw an example recently of a company that had implemented an entirely flat hierarchy and anyone could work from anywhere they wanted and it was all about getting the job done. What a novel idea. You know, I mean, what a no-brainer. I have multiple companies. I have consultants who work for me. Some of them I've never met. I don't need to meet them. They're all trusted and reliable and they get on with their job. And our team goal is to make sure our clients are happy because otherwise we all lose money. We've all got skin in the game, you know, and nobody benefits by uh, letting the ego into play. And I think that's really where it's gone wrong. And the problem with that is that salespeople are awesome at selling. Marketing people are awesome at marketing. But when it comes to a debate between the two, salespeople will win because salespeople are better at advocating themselves generally and sales generally than marketing is, is at advocating themselves and marketing. So the efficacy of sales is about revenue and money. And marketing is often, you know, I still hear marketing is called the coloring in department. I mean, that's bananas. The value of marketing is only coloring in. It's laughable. We don't live in that world anymore, but there's a lot of attitude out there that still supports that. So in a doggy dog world, you know, the dog with the loudest bark is or the or the greatest bite is going to win, aren't they? Okay. So again, I see this a lot 
in other areas as well. So, for example, sustainability, it's often poo-pooed and it's seen as a cost center. It's a, a nice to have. Interestingly enough, you're starting to see private equity investors withdraw funding or refuse to fund organizations that don't have strongly sustainable businesses. Yeah. And even the Bank of England was talking about how important it is for sustainability for businesses to literally sustain. And it should be a profit center. Your finance department should be a profit center. Yeah. Your operations should be profit centers. All yeah. of these can be if they are working towards common purpose. Yeah. And this is where leadership is massively at fault. And I point the finger firmly and squarely at the leaders. Why is it that the people in your organization, if you were to ask them, what does this business stand for? Why are you in business? Not one of them would say the same thing. And they certainly wouldn't say what you're saying. There are a tiny handful of examples where that is the case. But too often, everybody is pulling in different directions, largely because of lack of communication and lack of understanding. So one of the things that I insist on with my clients is as they're trying to grow the business, that other departments are involved in sales meetings and salespeople are involved in operations and marketing and finance. And they get to spend time in those other departments so that they can see that they are interdependent. Now, with sales and marketing in particular, I think this is really important. Because marketing done well is the best possible investment you can make in your business. Yeah, a five penny advert can bring in hundreds of thousands of pounds. And in terms of relative ROI, you're talking about a massive return. So what I'd really like to understand is what can businesses do to innovate the alignment between sales and marketing? What are the tactics that you're recommending in your consultancy and in your training to make sure that those two departments in particular are working towards common purpose? That's a great question. And the answer to it is that it's all about, it goes right back to the first word I said, it goes, the first word I said, it goes back to ego. The biggest challenge we face as human beings isn't going to Mars, it isn't even solving climate change. All of the challenges we think are challenges are nothing in comparison to the challenge that has dogged us from the dawn of, dawn of time of sentient humanity, and that is mastery over our ego. Because until we are coachable, we cannot evolve and grow. And being coachable, you know, I was saying someone today, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, a great film that obviously anyone worth his salt in anything commercial will know back to front. And of course, in it, the eponymous uh, lead played by Mr. Baldwin talks about ABC always be closing. Well, I've nicked that. And for me, it's always be coachable, 100%. Because the bottom line is, if you think you know more than people around you, 99.9% of the time you're wrong. There's no question. You can't know everything. And so if ego is in play, you are going to know everything. And that's when it creates division, separation of mission between people. And then what that permissions, inevitably, because we're human beings and by nature, this is just the way we behave. You know, Machiavelli called this centuries ago in The Prince. We become political. And you see that in every company. I mean, who, anyone listening to this, if you've operated in a company that didn't have politics, email me and tell me the name of that company. And I don't think I'll get a single email because almost every company I've ever operated around, of course, there's politicking, there's gerrymandering, there's horse trading, there's compromising, 
There's all this stuff. And the reason for that is it's a, it's a sign of the presence of ego. When the ego is not there, when we're operating together out of respect for each other, when we're growing and coaching each other all the time, when our ego is not in play, we don't need politics. It becomes irrelevant. Have you come across the Cartman Triangle? No, actually. Okay. Stephen Cartman came up with a wonderful model that elegantly describes every broken, fucked up, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have (laughs) on three points. You have a victim, a persecutor, and a rescuer. And ego thrives on drama. And if you haven't read it yet, I'd recommend strongly Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. It's a wonderful book. Now, the antidote to this is the Winner's Triangle by a chap called A.C. Choi. And the Bruce Lee was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. Yeah. Well, yeah. instead of the drama triangle, instead of the victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of the persecutor, you're assertive. Yeah. And instead of being rescuing, then you are nurturing and empathic. Yeah. And the beauty of this is that you are always behaving rationally. You step out of the amygdala trap because the moment your ego is hooked, you tend to fall into freeze, flight, or fight. Not much frolicking. And the problem with that is that people tend to swap positions. So you'll feel hard done by after having done someone a favor they never asked you to do. And when they then turn on you and say, Al, bugger off then your response is, I was only trying to help. It's not fair. And you find this all the time in business, in life. And in fact, our media is driven by it. When was the last time you watched an episode of the news and you said, you know, fuck me, that was uplifting. I can't wait for the next one. (laughs) No, 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 no. It doesn't happen. As a species, we are looking for other people to be more not okay than us in order to feel okay. Now, if you operate from the winner's triangle and you are vulnerable, and vulnerable comes from the Latin root vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable, put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. It's an act of courage, Mm. not an act of weakness. And assertiveness means that you draw a very clear line in the sand, which means that you're willing to tell people no. You're willing to plant your feet. And nurturing means that you keep them intact at an identity level, which, again, is massively underutilized in management, in leadership, in sales, and also in marketing. So I absolutely agree with you that we need to create this alignment. And it does come from a place of common purpose and respect, mutual respect. So given that there is so much drive within most businesses for individuals to compete. I look at Eastern um, philosophy, and you look at Chinese businesses, for example, Mm. and philosophies like Taoism and Confucianism, which are really more about the collective. And you look at Chinese businesses with 100-year plans, and we work on quarterly cycles. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this was the end of the Korean War. The Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years. The American delegation rented three floors of the Hilton for three months. (laughs) Who was going to win that particular negotiation? It was a foregone conclusion. And I think one of the things that we need to do is slow down 
So, Al, tell me, instant gratification, what the hell is that all about? We've created a culture where, and I think this is totally related to what we were talking or what you were talking about a moment ago about stepping into the amygdala mode. We've created a culture inadvertently since the 1950s that premises success and progress on speed. You know, Bill Gates even wrote a book in 96 called Business at the Speed of Thought. You know, everything's about speed. Speed is a, re- a, a really great way to sell anything if it's quick. Being quick is great, right? That's why Domino's Pizza you gets here really quickly. And the reason for that, of course, is time is our most precious resource. So, of course, we all naturally want stuff quicker. So when, when you get stuff quicker, of course, you're delighted. So it's a very inadvertent trap. And of course, when you get stuff quicker, when you know something faster, when you're the first person on Facebook to announce the death of a celebrity before all your friends know it, and you receive all the pleasurable, oh no, Al, you're the bringer of truth. You know, that triggers tons of chemical reaction on our brains, which creates even more addiction to speed and proximity to knowledge and proximity, therefore, to the resulting service or product or whatever it is we get. And so, and the reason it started in the 50s is because genuinely, it's been going on for a lot longer than that. It's, for, for, since the dawn of the narrative, speed has been of the essence. But since the 1950s, television has massively accelerated the dissemination of information. So we've seen a massive cultural shift. And that's why, to a large degree, if you look, and I'm sure lots of American people might disagree with me, but if you look at the state of American culture, because it's so TV-centric compared to the state of less TV-centric cultures, I would argue that less TV-centric cultures have held on to cultural norms established over centuries for longer, whereas America is a newer sovereign nation. So the cultural mores brought together from the melting pot of peoples that created America haven't somehow stood the test of time as much. Same in the UK to a massive degree. My father was an immigrant to this country. Many of the traditions have been lost and sort of blended in. Because we live in this homogenizing kind of constantly speeding up environment. So we're we're conditioned as humans, I think. And I'm no psychologist, but I'm pretty sure the argument is there to support it based on what I know. We're conditioned as humans to crave instant gratification. And all of our social media confirms that. And that's why Instagram now are getting rid of likes and demonstrating the number of likes that a post has because they can see it's feeding the wrong wolf. There's a great story about you've got to feed the right wolf. It's feeding the wrong wolf. And I think as a society, we're seeing that because our generation, my generation, I'm 47. Now I've got a 13-year-old son. I'm more aware than ever. And my son, even at 13, is aware of the cult of instant gratification. So I think it's moving from subconscious on a collective level to consciousness. And that means it's about to dissipate. We will cease to need speed. And actually, if you look at the millennial generation, whilst they want instant gratification, they're also much more relaxed in other ways that we, my generation, certainly isn't. So I think when it comes to sales and marketing, I think the pressures, the pressures I've always seen salespeople endure of, you know, what's in the pipeline? When are you closing your first deal? What have you got lining up? What else is coming in? You know, constantly driving the result rather than rewarding the behavior that's going to lead to the result. And it's the same in marketing. Everybody wants, I mean, every client I've ever had wants to go viral tomorrow. Of course they do. Absolutely. I mean, that's just not going to happen. 
I'm sorry. And if, it's like in the 90s and well, in the late, in the early noughties, you know, if anybody said to you, we can get you to, you know, first position on Google, it was commonly accepted. Well, it was probably BS and a scam because it was obviously going to cut a corner that was going to cause a problem. It's the same in sales and marketing today. You can't get to instant gratification. It doesn't exist, actually. The huge hobby horse of mine at the moment is that everyone wants to be a rock star. They want the trappings of the fame and the fortune, but they don't want to put the graft in. I always use the example of the Beatles. You know, seven years in a dingy Hamburg cellar playing 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and then they become an overnight success. And I've noticed it in my own career. As I've slowed down, and I've taken stock of the acts of idiocy and self-sabotage along the way. And I've learned my lessons through scar tissue. I've found that I have to do less to get more. Yeah. And certainly for the last 10, 12 years, probably about 15, 16 years, actually, I've been using social media. And I used to look for the likes and I'd be driven by that. But what yeah. I'm really interested in is the three or four people who actually get in touch off the back of the piece of content. And if I only get 20, 30 views, but I get yeah. four or five yeah. leads come in from it, then I'm a happy bunny and I'm feeling the right wolf. You mentioned behavior. The only thing we have control over is behavior. Absolutely. We don't have control over the result. And I know, certainly in sales, what I see so often is managers trying to manage the numbers. By the time you've got the numbers, you've already hit the iceberg and the Titanic is sunk. There's agreed. nothing you can do to um, uh, change trajectory. Yeah, agreed. agreed. In marketing, what should you be measuring and what should you not be measuring? I love that question. And genuinely, that's not a planted question, but I'm really glad you asked it. I'm very counterculture, I think, on this. I measure very little, but I think what I measure really matters. So, I mean... I was talking, again, I was talking about this to someone today. The first thing I look to measure is buzz. And buzz isn't an amalgamation of how many likes, how many comments, how many shares, because most marketing channels don't actually have those metrics. That's only social media metrics that have that natural feedback mechanisms built in. If you put a piece of content on Facebook, I'm aware of a movement of analytics that is now seeing less traction in the traditional ways and more traction under the radar. So people are less motivated to give a crap about a like or a share or even a comment because what's happening is if they like the content and they want to get in touch, they just do. They send you a message. So I'm seeing a lot more sub-communication rather than surface communication or subsurface communication rather than surface communication. So I always educate my clients to focus on measuring buzz. And there's an intuitive quality to this. Every time I speak to a client, I ask them, how are you feeling? Are you feeling buzz or are you not feeling buzz? They will tell me how they feel. I don't need any stats because the flip side of that is the PR agency that once told me they got me 800,000 pounds worth of placement and we didn't shift a single bloody product. <laughs> you, you can tell me stats, all day, and that's not to poo-poo PR. That's just a stat that really blew my mind once. You can tell me all manner of stats. You can tell me we got all the likes, we got all the shares, we got all, all the comments. But if no one's talking to me, if people aren't entering the checkout process, if I'm not getting any messages, it really doesn't mean anything. So 
I'd rather focus on the things I want to measure that do mean something. So one of the biggest metrics in Buzz is how many conversations are you having with prospects? Because you can start to measure the granularity of where they've come from, what they responded to, you know, all of that stuff. But to be honest, if we're getting loads of buzz, we'll be looking at and working out where the buzz has come from. But for the client's perspective, the most important thing is lots of buzz, lots of noise, lots of conversations with prospects, more conversations this week than last week, more deals moving into the pipeline because of it. Clients are absolutely delighted. Absolutely delighted because that's what they want. If the market is a conversation, they just want to be moving more and more into the middle of the conversation. So, I mean, that market is a conversation is a really good quote. So, I shall be stealing that. Where did you get it from, or did you invent it? That's from the no, no, it's not mine. It's from the Clue Train Manifesto. Ah, right. Yes, I remember now. And the Clue Um, Train Manifesto is biblical in its nature, to be honest. Okay. So, tell me this. I've noticed certainly from my own content marketing in the last year in particular, I've been really working very hard to write stuff that I find interesting and speaks to my why, but I feel is important for my audience. And the net result of that is the constant deal flow, that sort of subsurface communication. So Almost a day, there's almost no day goes by where I'm not getting some form of inbound inquiry. And a lot of business is coming through that. I don't get the same kind of coverage that other people do. I don't get the number of volume of likes and all of that. But my average cost of customer acquisition I calculated was £36 on a £20,000 order. That's not too bad. That's a pretty decent return. And it's struck me that it's really important to focus on delivering content that's important, that's meaningful, that adds value. And it's not about self-promotion and it's not about you. It's about the customer. And increasingly, I've looked at the films and the stories that tend to grab people. And the ones that do are always about a protagonist who finds a guide to help them through their problem. And I think in marketing and in sales, we need to take the position of guide, not hero. Why is it still that so many people want to take the position of hero, whether they're selling or marketing? And why, what can you do to stop them? We come back to ego. It's because their objectives aren't aligned with the organizations. It's because their, their power, their reward comes from self-gratification. And that's why they'd rather take the likes and the presence than the conversations. I'll take the conversations any day. I don't, uh, and this isn't, again, this isn't to poo-poo anyone. I've never won an award in my life. (laughs) I don't enter any awards. Uh, I've thought about it. I've come close, but I'm not poo-pooing awards. But for me, I'm kind of, I'd rather be Bernie Taupin than Elton John. So what kind of results are you generating? For me? For, For your clients? Well, more than satisfactory, great results. I'm not going to go into specific numbers, but for me, you know, my growth last year was very strong double-digit growth. For most of my clients, I don't lose clients. Engagements come to an end, but I don't typically lose. I'm trying to think of, I, I get rid of more clients than I lose. Saying no and F you, you've got to do it. You've got to know who you want to serve. And I'm starting to move towards the idea of having a written contract that if people 
agree to become my client and I agree to take them on, then there's an implementation contract. I've been working with a bunch of people recently and I've had one client who came to me who's been working two months and they went from a million of week pipeline to 3.6 million in two and a half months. And it looks like most of that's going to close because we've qualified it properly. Had uh, just a second coaching call with a client this morning and we've been working together a month and he's had his strongest month ever simply by following instruction and and letting his ego go and doing the stuff that made him scared. But actually it worked and it allowed him to focus his attention on those who can and will buy rather than those who could but won't. So we're coming to the top of the hour. I always have my two favorite questions. So who influences you? Who do you read? Which podcast do you listen to? What do you watch? I've been looking forward to this. And I was wondering who I was going to say. And actually, the one person I haven't mentioned that I think is the most influential force in my universe right now for multiple levels, and I think actually is the solution to 99% of what we've talked about today, controversially, maybe, maybe not, is Brené Brown. I don't know if you're aware. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, on shame and vulnerability, on the neutralizing of the ego, on the ability to work together because you get rid of all the crap that we carry with us. I mean, and I've written to her. I'm sure she hasn't responded because she gets millions, but uh, maybe she will one day. But I think she's the most important thing of the 21st century. Never mind physics and biology and chemistry and maths and medicine and engineering. This woman is single-handedly tackling the architecture of our minds. And that, to me, is the greatest frontier because if we can move past ego as a race, you know, think about moving past politics. Imagine being post-political and coming together and solving problems, not for any BS reasons, not for any political party funding lobbyist reasons, but because we're all aligned. And there were so many people who say, well, it's not possible. We could never be aligned. Well, in the word, to, to quote the immortal words, they may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I think uh, what Brene Brown is bringing is just phenomenal. And I was introduced to her through my wife. My wife is a, a Reiki healer and a very uh, incredible soul. And I was very standoffish at first. Oh, shame and vulnerability. But Fantastic. My God. I mean, she's yeah. out of this world. So that's probably the biggest influence. What do I listen to? I'm going through a period where I'm not listening to an awful lot. I'm very heads down at the moment, very focused, very driven, and I'm not driving an awful lot, which reduces my podcast time when I'm driving a lot. Obviously, my podcast time goes up. I'm just navigating my way through Neuromancer by William Gibson, which is obviously a a phenomenal, incredible piece of work for anyone in the digital space. I've just finished re-listening to Dune by Frank Herbert. In terms of podcasts, I've been listening to... George Swift, who you will know, of course, incredible Mr. Swift, and also listening to Matt Elwell, who you may know or may not know from the Elite Closing Academy. Uh, So George and Matt are in my ear. I'm in George's mastermind, and that's an incredible uh, place to be. On top of that, I think the only other podcasts, I'm not dipping into anything specific, so I, I float around a fair bit. I'm not very loyal, actually. I'm a bit ADHD, so I, I won't really getting me to focus on specific podcasts. I'll miss episodes. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very tarty when it comes to podcasts. So in terms of Brene Brown, her book, The Lead, is fantastic. 
I Thought It Was Only Me is another fantastic book. And if you haven't seen her TED Talk on Shame and Vulnerability, it's magnificent. And Um, her Netflix special. I mean, the Netflix, I mean, she's just, every time I listen to her, I kind of think, well, I've heard it all. And and it's absolutely astounding that the truth that that woman has crystallized is just phenomenal. There's nothing else like it. It's incredible. Absolutely. And I have to endorse George Swift as well. George and I are yeah. working together on a mastermind group of ourselves course. to helping businesses get exit ready, which is really fascinating. You know, the combination of preparation for exit, goal setting, sales, and organizing a business into the right structure so that you can literally walk away when the right size check comes along. It's a lovely, lovely proposition. So tell me this then, Frank Herbert and Dune, I mean, that, that takes me back to so many years. Have you come across Joe Abercrombie? No. Joe Abercrombie writes really dark humor fantasy. So it's like Game of Thrones, but without the irritating voices <laughs> and just fabulous. So his first law trilogy, if you're into fantasy, that kind of thing, it's a really good read. Just looking it up, it looks amazing. It's fabulous. All the stuff in the first law, the sharp ends, and all of that series are just fabulous. Okay, so tell me this. You have a golden ticket time machine, and you can go back and you can advise the idiot Al, 23 years old. What would you advise him? I don't know that I need to go that far back, actually. <laughs> Maybe more recently, idiot Al would be, would be uh, even more attainable. What would I advise? I think it comes down to being coachable and paying attention to the wise people around you because I think that would have stood me in good stead if I'd have shut my mouth and paid more attention and listened more than talked. I can talk, Marcus, I can talk. Uh, really, I've not noticed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> have yeah. you come across Mark Goulston's work, Just Listen? No. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, I have. Uh, how do you say it? Mark Goulston. Yeah, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. Outstanding. That, that yeah. book is an absolute must. And you know, combine that with Brene Brown's work. I, I couldn't agree more. If I was advising my 23-year-old self, it would be get a coach. I've yeah. studied a lot, probably about 21. I've been listening to audio books and audio courses, but I didn't get a coach soon enough. And I kind of resisted it. I think partly yeah. out of shame because I didn't really want to admit my shortcomings. And since I've started working with coaches, I have six on the go at any particular time for different areas of my uh, life and work. And it's made me a better coach. It's allowed me to be more vulnerable, uh, to be more open to learning and to accept myself. And that was hugely, hugely beneficial because I think what we do is we build a suit of armor and we become very brittle, which means that we're more liable to break when the wind's up. And we need to learn to be more flexible, to bend, and to accept that while we're not perfect, that's fine. So I think that's fantastic advice. Any last words? Oh, <laughs> before I'm taking that roundly shot, yeah. Could you aim in the immortal words of Blackadder slightly above my head? Um, uh, any last words? I think just, just be kind to people and be coachable. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and be coachable. I think ultimately the world would be a, a much better place if we could all just take a moment, not judge people, try and understand their journey, 
where they've come from, where they're going, and take the time to be present with people and not just judge and, you know, draw conclusions. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, Al, how can people get hold of you? Well, I'm blessed with and cursed with a very, very unique name. Al Tepper owns the first page of Google. If you look for Al Tepper, if you look for Tepfu, T-E-P-F-U, in the nicest possible way, that also uh, owns the first page of Google, although there is a Japanese packing tape that's called Tepfu, which is very random. So I'm quite easy to find on social and via Google. You can go to tepfu.com. You can go to altepa.com, which is a really old school basic link station, if you like. And uh, yeah, I'm everywhere. Altepa, Tepfu. I'd love to hear from people. Love love making connections. I love listening and learning from people. So hit me. Yep. Fabulous. Altepa, thank you very much for being a wonderful guest. Thank you so Um, much for having me. It's been amazing. It's a pleasure. So this is Marcus Cathy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you know someone who you think would be an interesting guest, please ping me a direct message on LinkedIn or email me at marcus.cowkey at sandler.com with their name and why you think they'd be a good guest. If you can furnish me with an introduction, that would be really helpful. If you'd be an interesting guest, I'd love to hear from you. If you've got something important to say around sales, marketing, recruitment, scaling up the channel, anything along those lines, then please get in touch. And I have a request. I would love to interview Ant Middleton for his leadership messages because his book, First Man In, speaks a number of really important truths. And the other person I would love to be introduced to is Ray Dalio, author of Principles, also founder of the world's largest private hedge fund. So fascinating truths about what works and what doesn't work in uh, life and in business. So please get in touch. That's Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling. Go sell. Bye.